Good morning, Redeemer. You can open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. That's where the reading is from today. Uh, We come happily to Advent, to Advent season uh, 2020. I know many of you, uh, like myself, have been listening to Christmas music long before Thanksgiving was over. No judgment. Again, I I was doing that as well. I feel like a lot of times, you know, people get made fun of for that. But in 2020, everyone's like, no, no, just go ahead. Whatever you want to do, we'll give you that. Um, We think of Advent mainly as a a lead-up to Christmas, I think. And it is that. It certainly is that. Uh, But historically, on the church calendar, it's been much more than that. For 1,500 years at least, uh, the church has practiced Advent as a season on the church calendar. Advent is from the Latin, literally, to come. Uh, and so it, it, it traditionally refers to the, the past and the future comings of Jesus. Right? But so both the incarnation, Jesus in the manger, and the eschaton, Jesus returning in glory. Um, because of this dual focus, it's a season of, of both remembering and rejoicing, uh, but also of waiting and of longing. We, we like the remembering and rejoicing. That seems natural to us. Uh, but, but I think we, we shy away from and, and we aren't as excited about the longing and the waiting. We, we have, uh, I think just historically, in recent times, we've shied away from that second focus some. In fact, this, uh, I read this week that instead of the weekly themes uh, that, that we use, that many churches use for Advent of hope, peace, joy, and love, uh, in, in, in previous uh, centuries of the church, the, the weekly themes were death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So that'll be next, next year's Advent series. Uh, we'll we'll kind of do those. So, but I do think that we need both the, the past and the future focuses. I think we need, uh, we need both of these. My, my kids inevitably ask us uh, if they can watch a movie in the car, like watch a show in the car. Uh, we live literally three minutes from this building. Uh, but when we get in the car to come to church, that's, you know, that's the immediate question. And our answer is always the same. No, you can't, right? We, we don't watch shows unless we're on long car rides. Uh, we explain, again, that, you know, they wouldn't even be able to get through the opening credits. Not, it's not worth it. We're not watching shows when we're just in town. If we go to, if we go to Dallas, four-hour car ride, sure, we'll watch one. But, but not, uh, not in, in town, not on short rides. And, and what they haven't grasped is their context. They haven't grasped their context. Uh, where you are and where you're going it determines a lot of what you should expect and what you should spend your time on and what is appropriate for you to do. Looking at Advent, both the, the past and the future, is important because it places us firmly in context, right? Both, uh, it, it, both historical contents, uh, context where we are in history, where we are in redemptive history. Um, It's important because our lives will be shaped by whatever we believe our context to be, right? You believe something about where you are in history, what, what, why, why life matters, what you're doing here. Uh, You have a context that you're, you're believing, even if you don't realize it. Um, And that will shape how we act and what we do. Um, Advent reminds us of our context. It reminds us that we are in between. We are sandwiched in between the past coming of Jesus and the future coming of Jesus. We, are, uh, we're, we aren't like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Ezekiel, uh, you know, Isaiah. We aren't looking forward to uh, a, a snake crusher, right? The one who would come and, and crush the serpent. Uh, the one who would be a, a king in the line of David. 
Uh, we, we know who that is, right? The mystery, as Paul often says, is, has been revealed. Christ has come, right? He has lived and died and risen from the dead, and that has changed everything. But as we will see, we, we haven't seen all the promises fulfilled yet, right? We've seen the beginning of the end, but we, we haven't seen the end. We, we've been let in on the secret of how the war is going to resolve, but we're still in the trenches, Right? We, we uh, you know, the bride and groom have, have said, I do, and kissed, but they haven't driven off. They haven't left the reception yet. We're, we're in between. And this explains so much of the Bible. It's what theologians call the already and not yet. Right? That we've, we've received so many of the promises, and we've not yet received so many of the promises and the fullness of their fulfillment. So, um, as we look to Isaiah 9, it's a, it's a classic Advent passage um, and let's set it in context, and then hopefully let's let it set us in our proper context. We're going to see three things today. The darkness, the promise, and the hope. The darkness, the promise, and the hope. Let's pray uh, once more, and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for your coming for Advent. Um, thank you that you came for us. I'm thinking that you will come for us. Would you, would you help us to be able to focus on these things um, and to, to remember uh, and to long? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Isaiah writes uh, in the 8th century before Christ, so over 700 years before Jesus came, which is pretty incredible if you look at some of the things that Isaiah uh, predicted, right, that he saw, that God revealed to him. Uh, He was a a prophet of Judah. Uh, He was from Jerusalem. And so you remember that uh, David and Solomon's reigns were the golden age of Israel. Uh, And then after Solomon, the kingdom divided, the kingdom split between the north and the south, Israel and Judah. Uh, it, Isaiah lives and writes, he lives in this period in the south in, in Judah under four kings, right? Four kings of Judah. Um, Isaiah lived in a time of great cultural and, and uh, political upheaval. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. Think, things are not looking good for Israel or Judah geopolitically. Assyria, under a new leader, uh, is, is on the ascendancy as a world power. They, they haven't, they've been sort of weak. They haven't been bothering uh, Israel or Judah, but, but they've, they're growing in power. Uh, and it look, they look really dangerous, right? And, and in fact, the northern kingdom begins to fall, right? Syria will conquer, end up conquering uh, Israel um, in, in God's judgment. Uh, but, but even in, in Isaiah's time, in 2 Kings 15, 29, it says this, in the, in the days of King Pekah of Israel, King Tiglath-Pileser of, Is- of Assyria came and captured Ejon, Abel Beth Maka, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. And, and this sets up our, our passage. Um, Ahaz, who's the king of Israel, or the king of Judah, rather, uh, despite Isaiah's warning from God, he gets scared and he makes an, he makes an alliance with Assyria, right? He, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to p- pay him off, bribe him so that he doesn't destroy us. And so Isaiah prophesies that if God's people don't trust him, uh, if they don't fear him, they don't take refuge in him alone, then Assyria will in fact invade and will wipe them out. He says this in, in chapter 8 of Isaiah. And chapter 8 ends with these words. You can look at them in, in Isaiah 8, verse 21. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look towards the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. Isaiah uses the imagery of darkness here, like light and darkness. Um, the darkness is, 
that the people of God were walking into was, was both outward and inward. It was both physical and spiritual. The, the, the darkness was very tangible. It was very physical, right? Uh, Assyria destroying their homeland, many killed by the sword, many deported as slaves. But, but, but why had this happened? It happened because of inner darkness, because of spiritual darkness. They had rejected God. Right? This is the story of the Old Testament, is that God always said this was going to happen. They rejected God. They looked to their own resources, to, to idols. They worshiped the idols of the people. Um, they, they looked to human aid to save them. And so they were experiencing the judgment of God. You've probably noticed um, in, in, uh, recently our, getting darker and darker here, right? Uh, it gets darker earlier and earlier. And the Advent season corresponds with darkness, uh, the winter solstice is the darkest day of the year, right? The shortest day of the year. Uh, it's December 21st this year. And, and as our days get darker, it's important um, that, that we confront the, the darkness in our world. Okay? And I think it's actually a little easier to do that this year than, than other years. 2020 has revealed some darkness. It's been a hard year. Just like with the Israelites, there's darkness on the outside and there's darkness on the inside. Now first, there's darkness on the outside. At the turn of the 20th century, some thought that, uh, that education and modern science and technology would eradicate poverty and disease and war and would usher in a time of peace and prosperity, worldwide peace and prosperity. And if there's anything that the last 120 years have shown us, it's that the darkness is harder to eradicate than we thought. Have we made some progress? Yes, of course. Would I rather live now than 100 years ago? Yes, I think so. Um, but have we eradicated the darkness? No, not even close. Like, turn on the news. A global pandemic, political instability, terrorism, sexual abuse, child trafficking, divorce, war, poverty, depression, pornography, abortion, materialism, crime, racism, hatred, polarization, fear. Like, you could, this list could just keep going. We, we have not outgrown the darkness, have we? So many have lost so much just this year. There's so much disruption going on, and there seems to be no end in sight. But the darkness is, is not only outside, it's also inside us. And this is a little harder to face. We, we are not, if we're honest, who we should be, who we want to be. We, like God's people in the Old Testament, struggle to give ourselves completely to God. We worship idols, right? Not just of silver and gold, but of silver and gold and Pacific blue and of graphite, which are the new iPhone colors. We, we might not look to the king of Assyria to save us, but we trust in technology to meet our needs and to rid our lives of discomfort. We don't burn incense to an idol, hopefully, uh, but we burn calories in pursuit of an ideal body, or we burn the candle at both ends in pursuit of the idol of financial security. We don't visit temple prostitutes, but we are enslaved to pornography. We don't pour out a libation for Dionysus, uh, but when we are sad, we go to the bottle or to the pantry or to the fridge again and again and again. We would like to separate ourselves from the darkness and from the paganism that Israel and Judah fell in lockstep with, but we cannot. We just can't. 
And the reason is because the darkness isn't just outside us, it's inside us. It comes from our hearts. Jesus says what comes from the heart is what defiles a person. The darkness is real, both outside and, and in. And so we need Advent. We need Advent. Let's look at the promise. The promise. This is 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, these are two of the sons of, uh, of Israel, um, uh, the sons of Jacob, uh, two of the tribes. Uh, and, and they were the first, as we saw, they were the first to fall to Assyria. They were in, in the north, northern part of Israel. They were the first to fall. They were the first in, into darkness. But Isaiah sees that it won't always be so. This land, this very place, this very region is where a great light will appear. And, and when Jesus began his ministry in Matthew 4, it actually quotes this exact verse. And it says that Jesus went and lived in the land of Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill this very prophecy. Isaiah sees this in the future and describes it as something that has passed, something that has already happened. What's the promise of this light in the darkness? What does it say? Verse 3. You've enlarged the nation. You've increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. You can see the contrast here between an Assyrian invasion and, and this, this light shining in the darkness, this hope. Right? Uh, the, 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 rather than losing their nation, right? rather than their nation getting smaller, the nation is enlarged. Rather than sorrow, they have joy. Rather than their crops being burned or stolen, they rejoice at harvest time as they bring in their harvest. And rather than being conquered, they are, they are the conquerors. They are dividing up the spoil. Verse 4, For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. God has shattered the yoke, the rod, the staff of the oppressors. Israel's enemies rendered powerless, just as God did on the day of Midian. Everyone's like, yeah, the day of Midian. Like, <laughs> what's that? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, that, that's a reference to, to Gideon's defeat of the Midianites, right, in, in uh, Judges 6 through 8. You should read it. It's a really cool story, right? You remember the story? Judge, uh, the Midianites are, are pressing Israel. There's a huge army coming in. Gideon is, is a judge, and God raises him up to deliver his people. And he has a big army, and he's going. And God's like, yeah, the army's too big. He's like, just tell everyone who's scared they can go home. Okay, so a big, big part of the army leaves, and God goes, yeah, it's still too big. Let's go down to the river, see, see how they drink. Can anyone who drinks, drinks water with their hands or something send them home? The only people that can stay are people who lick up the water like dogs from the, from the stream. <laughs> and it's only 300 people stay, right? And, and God's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the right, that's the plan, right? We'll take these 300 soldiers against an army of over 100,000. And this is God's plan, and this is what Gideon does. And the whole point of it, um, just defeating the Midianite army of over 100,000 with only 300 soldiers, the whole point of it was to show that, that only God can deliver Israel. 
right? It's only an act of God that can deliver his people. It's not human strength or ingenuity. And Isaiah is saying this deliverance, this light dawning in the darkness will be an act of God alone. And can't we admit this? Can't we admit this today that that the only answer to our darkness, the darkness inside and the darkness outside in our world is an act of God? This separates Christianity from every other religion. Every religion says you have to do something. You have to get your act together. You have to clean up. You have to begin to obey. You You have to do something to get to God, to please God. Christianity is the only religion that starts by saying we are hopeless unless God intervenes. We cannot do anything. We need an advent. It's not our strength. It's not our ingenuity. It's not our powers of self-mastery or technology or scientific advancement that will deliver us. It's only God. And so here we come to the crux of this passage, the crux of this promise and the crux of history itself. How will this deliverance, how will this true joy and peace and, and, uh, and freedom come about? Verse 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The the promise hinges on a child being born, which is awesome, right? A huge invading army, what do we need? An infant, let's get an infant. (laughs) Like, ah, the the humility of God, right? And, and, And the the wondrous work of God, right? That he uses the weak things to shame the strong. This is, of course, a reference to Jesus, to the incarnation, to the the wonder of Christmas, God becoming flesh. Jesus, the son of God, was born to Mary as an infant. A child would be born, a son given. The government will be on his shoulders, it says. A child who would grow up to rule, what, what, what qualifies this child to rule? Well, it tells us four things. It tells us four things uh, who he is. He is, number one, wonderful counselor. He's wonderful counselor. This is, gets to the wisdom of Jesus, his wisdom. We know that Jesus is the wisest person who has ever lived, right? Jesus is very smart. I don't know if we think of him that way. He's so smart, right? He's the most capable person who has ever lived. He is the wisdom of God, First Corinthians 1 tells us, and he gives wisdom to his people. He is our wonderful counselor. John 14, 16 says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus said. I am coming to you. We know that God himself leads us. He's our counselor. Second, he's mighty God. He's mighty God. This is, it gets to his divine strength, right? Jesus' divine strength. This is one of the reasons we know that this is Jesus. Uh, one of the many reasons, because this baby is divine. This baby was no mere human. 
Um, how, how is Jesus mighty? How does he show, show his strength? Well, verse 7 explains it pretty well, uh, that his dominion and it will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign with justice and righteousness forever and ever. It takes a mighty human to rule over a nation, and it takes a mighty God to rule over the cosmos for eternity. It takes such strength, and this is Jesus. He rules in strength. He is mighty God. Next, he's eternal father. Eternal father. How is Jesus eternal father? It's like, isn't that confusing, the Trinity? He's not the father. He's not, yeah. uh, no, right? It's, it's not talking about the Trinity here. Um, in, in ancient times, uh, a good king could be said to be a father to his people. What does that mean? It means he mean, meant he took care of his people, right? He, uh, he was very loving and caring toward his people. And that's what this is saying, is that Jesus will care for us. He takes care of us. An earthly king or a father could take care of you. Even the best could take care of you for a certain amount of time. But of course, inevitably we'll get old and die and won't be able to take care of you anymore. But not Jesus, because he's eternal father. Right? He, will, he always lives to intercede for us. He always lives to care for and take care of his people and meet their needs. And lastly, he's the prince of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. We'll talk about this next uh, next week more. But Isaiah 2, 4 says, he will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. This is what verse five was getting at. Right, every trampling boot of battle, the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. We don't need war instruments, war clothing anymore. That stuff can just be used to heat the house up. Uh, because there is peace, because the Prince of Peace rules, and his dominion will be vast and will never end. Only he can bring it. Jesus is the only one who can rule with wisdom and rule with strength forever. He's the only one who can always take care of us and who can establish real and lasting peace on earth. This is the promise, and, and it's sealed with the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. That word zeal is jealousy, the jealousy of God himself, the one who rules over all the angel armies. He's gonna do this. It's a guarantee. Nothing can stop him. So now let's talk about hope. Let's talk about hope. Hope is what happens when we confront the darkness honestly and we take the promise seriously. Hope is what happens when we confront the darkness honestly and we take the promise seriously. In other words, hope is what happens when we realize our true context. If we don't confront the darkness, we don't need hope, right? Like if life is good enough for you, you don't need to hope for anything. If we are insulated from much of the darkness in the world so we don't have to think about it, Right, if we're like if we're young and we don't have to think about death, you know, that, we can put that off for a while. If we can distract ourselves with enough Netflix and stuff and fun experiences, then we can live without acknowledging the darkness in our world. If we can manage our reputation or control our environment or make enough money or, or be comfortable constantly enough, we don't have to discuss or consider the ways that we're living only for ourselves. This world becomes our home then, right? It, it's, it's nice here. It's fun here. It's comfortable here. I like it here. But, but that illusion, that illusion will crack at some point. 
And maybe that point has been 2020 for, for some of us. And we'll have to confront honestly the darkness in the world, the darkness in ourselves, the darkness in others. And, and, and by the way, I'm not saying that this is an easy thing. There's a reason why we don't do it, right? It's so difficult, so difficult to look honestly at these things. But if we confront the darkness head on, as I think we should, we, we won't be able to carry on with hope unless we also take the promise seriously. Right? The, the promise right here in Isaiah 9, a child would be born who would be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He would shatter the oppressive yoke. Right? He will sit on the throne of David and bring peace and joy and justice and righteousness forever. This is the promise. It's the same promise that the angel gave to Mary in Luke 1. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. We we think about this promise as tied to the first advent, the first coming of Jesus. But I want to point out that most of this promise has not happened yet. Most of it hasn't happened yet. The, the child was born, yes, the son was given, and he was emphatically all of these things. Right? He proved himself to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. But as Hebrews tells us, we do not yet see all things subject to him. Right? The, the God of this world, the Bible calls Satan, still has some reign here. He's still prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Everything is not subject yet to Jesus. Jesus has dealt the decisive blow to sin and death and Satan in his, in his cross and in his resurrection. But he isn't yet reigning physically on the earth as he will when he comes. There's still much darkness on the earth. There's much injustice, much unrighteousness, much pain. There isn't peace and flourishing, which is why we long for the return of Christ. We long for the promise to be fulfilled. We long for the coming king. We are in between. We're in between. We've already seen the promise partially fulfilled, and we have not yet seen its fullness. And do we take it seriously? Do we take the promise seriously? I'm not saying it's easy to do that either. Right? It's difficult to take this promise seriously because we can only do it by faith. We can only do it by faith. Just as Isaiah couldn't foresee exactly what Jesus and his ministry would entail, though if you read Isaiah 53, he sure saw a lot, right? But he, he didn't know exactly what, would, what it would look like. In the same way, we can't put our fingers exactly on the details of what it will be like when Jesus returns. But, brothers and sisters, by the Holy Spirit, we can and we must take hold of the promises of God. We have enough. right? We have a lot. And we can trust it. We can take it seriously. We can believe it. If we confront the darkness honestly and we take the promise seriously, then we can have hope. And we have hope. We can whistle in the dark. We can smile through the tears. We can laugh and eat and drink with joy all the days of our short lives. Because God has acted in history. And because the light is in fact stronger than the darkness.
some of you won't confront the darkness in the world, honestly. You've, you've so made this world your home and insulated yourself from, from pain and anything uncomfortable. And for good reason, man. Like, I understand that. And, but maybe 2020 has been a, a wake-up call for you. To confront some of that. Some of you have, uh, won't confront the darkness in your own heart, honestly. You, have, you just have things, you have vices, things you do that, that you won't let go of. You, you live in, in constant insecurity, bitterness, envy of others, but won't admit it. In, in whatever way, you just deep down, you just live for yourself. You're just living your life for yourself because you, ultimately you just do not trust God with your life. Like what would happen if you just let go? You won't, you won't explore that possibility. Advent is a call to face the darkness squarely. And some of you know the darkness, but you aren't taking the promise seriously. You think of Jesus as a a mythical character in a child's storybook. Nice, you know, I like him, but not really relevant to my life. Maybe you believe the gospel. You believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead for you. But you've forgotten that Jesus didn't die again after he rose. Like, he's still alive. He's a person. He can hear you. He can see you. He's here with us now. Some of you don't believe he actually loves you. You don't think of Jesus as a real flesh and blood human being who actually will come to judge the world and to reign and to rule. He's going to make everything new. You don't think of that. You will see him, you know. Advent, the king has come in time and in history. And the king will come in time and in history. This is and always will be the Christian hope. So will you face the darkness? And will you trust the light? John writes these words about Jesus, and I will close with this. This is John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is from Revelation 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those that pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, even, even though the darkness is real um, and the darkness is overwhelming at times, thank you that we have hope because we have a promise. W- would you this Advent season make it so real to us, to our church family? 
the remembering, the rejoicing, that, that we, would, we would be able to celebrate that with full hearts. And the, the, the longing and the waiting that, that this is not our home, that, that we, are, we are strangers and exiles here. Would you remind us of those things? And could we long and, and wait for you with all of our hearts as well? Thank you for, for Advent, for a time to slow down, for a time to remember, for a time to long. We need you. Please help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.